Welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that will agree to film nude scenes with a male or female director. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Dan Acton. This week, we'll talk about what we've been watching. We have the third and final part of our Conflicts of Interest trilogy, talking about the most underrated films of the 2010s, some real news, and our main review is Outside the Wire on Netflix. What a shame that we can't go into the future and do underrated films of the 2020s. That's... Never mind. Never mind. Yeah. I'm sure Possessor would be on our lists. Oh, 100%. 100%. I will eat my own microphone if that doesn't come to fruition. But, yeah. James, I'm sorry. I've got to do it again. I'm going to keep it short and sweet this time. Please support us. Please like our podcast. Follow us on Instagram. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does make a difference. Every little helps. Tesco slogan. Don't know why I'm using that. Be individual. Moving on. It seems that me relaying that message has had an impact because we've had some feedback off listeners this week. Or listener. Would you care to share? Someone has messaged us to say that they agree with me that Daredevil is not that bad. And right. that the uncut version or the director's cut has some side stories that are more interesting. And it's dark for the earlier Marvel movies. So I know you maybe didn't go too hard on me but i was full of regret and shame but this this has vindicated me right well one i wish i'd vetted this comment before we discussed it on air because not in agreement at all and correct me if i'm wrong but you weren't reviewing the director's cut james you were reviewing the bog standard film i was but the the message does refer to the theatrical cut but the theatrical cut is not that bad in addition to that the director's cut is interesting. Again, all I'm saying is it's not that bad. Not that bad. But that isn't the name of the segment. We'll move on. Let's agree to disagree. <laughs> James, what's on your watch list on this fine week? It's not a fine week. What's on your watch list this miserable week? I wanted to get into some terrestrial TV and I watched... Two episodes plus 15 minutes of Finding Alice on ITV. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it. I saw its ratings on IMDb and I thought, skip it. It is awful. It is awful. (laughs) Skipping straight in. Cutting right to the chase. It's terrible. Family moves into a new home that is so like the kind that you would see on Grand Designs that all I could think about was whether this is really a house from Grand Designs. I've not bothered to find out. If this is one of the best things that ITV is pushing for us to watch, and it is, it's on their sort of January drama reel, I dread to think what else they've got. Alice's husband dies in the first 15 minutes, and Alice, who is played by Keely Dawes, not seen her in anything else, makes some bad decisions, behaves in a completely baffling way that completely took me out of the programme. She sees on the house's CCTV footage that someone was in the house when her husband fell down the stairs. She doesn't want to act on it. She doesn't tell the police. She wants to bury her husband in the garden, even though she doesn't actually own the house and lies to everyone for a whole episode. She doesn't react to her husband's business partner, who she's never heard of, turning up and giving her £1,000 in cash to help her out. Her suspicions aren't raised when she's got no money in the shared bank account. She's got no money 
doesn't seem that bothered. She can't feed a daughter. She's not interested in a daughter whose dad has just died. She's got a cutting and mean quip for everyone that she meets, even other grieving families in the morgue. Totally unsympathetic character. Didn't understand it. Is it a murder mystery? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? I watched two episodes and I have no idea. It seemed like the people involved haven't even decided what it's supposed to be. I went and watched the last 15 minutes of the last episode just to see what it ends up as. And it's still just people dithering about, not that bothered, having a drink, no drama, nothing. Skip. Finding Alice. Skip. Do not watch. I was going to drag you over the coals then about watching the last 15 minutes of the last episode, but if you had that much of a terrible journey with it from the off, then I think all can be forgiven. And, you know, if anything, you've just, you've seen it through. You've, you've, have I made a wise choice? Had that last 15 minutes have been great, what would you have done? I would have regretted it. The reason I watched the last 15 minutes is because I thought, is this going to escalate intention and become some sort of thriller drama? But it's obvious in the last 15 minutes that it, maintains that completely flat what is this it's not a comedy or drama tone all the way through okay so finding alice give it a mess can't believe you've not seen keely hawes in anything else have you avoided that one she's in everything i might have without realizing did you not watch the bodyguard from was it 2019 that god time flies i think it was no i didn't it's worth a watch it's good anything else that's not quite as dreadful as that Losing Alice. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. (laughs) This is brand new on Apple TV+. Plus. It's about a middle-aged director, Alice, who is bored of family life, maybe looking for some kind of inspiration. She meets Sophie, a young femme fatale superfan on a train, and she's written a mind-blowing screenplay about seduction and violence, and this series is about that screenplay being made into a film. And it is a means by which Sophie inserts herself into Alice's life. And I don't see this ending well for anyone. I've never watched a Hebrew language drama before. And I still haven't because I watched this with the English dub. It's had mixed reviews and it's a foreign language thriller tucked away on Apple TV+. Plus, So there's not a lot of hype around it. Three episodes have been released and I'm enjoying it. I am enjoying it. It maintains an atmosphere of tension, maintains an atmosphere of Suspicion, seduction, frustration in a lot of ways. Lichy Kornowski, who plays the young obsessed fan Sophie, is excellent in it. She has this magnetic power that pulls everyone in and she has no inhibitions and it shatters the domestic life of the main character and her actor husband. She's got an older boyfriend that makes everyone wonder whether her screenplay might be based on her life. Hmm, mystery. There's a five-minute scene where Alice and Sophie go to an interpretive dance class of some kind and they're writhing around and it's all very, very suggestive. It doesn't have a lot of depth. The characters are pretty much what I've described. The husband isn't even worth mentioning, but it meets the standard of Apple TV Plus stuff. It's stylish and sleek and I will continue to watch because it's got under my skin with its mystery. And it's clear that it's not, it's going to get worse. Something bad is going to happen. The opening scene is someone shooting themselves in the head in a hotel room. So you know it's not going to go very well from here. That definitely sounds intriguing. You may have found a, a diamond in the Amazon back catalogue rough. 
and I'll Apple TV. It's Apple TV, which I've said about three times. You did. You did. I do apologise. It was a slip of the tongue. Thanks for correcting me. Um, so I'll add that on the list. Cheers. Okay. Daniel, what have you been watching? I've not watched a lot and we're not in the interest of recycling or duplicating content on this podcast, unless it's James looking for TV content with very similar names. Uh, did you do that on purpose, by the way? No, I honestly didn't. I knew I was going to watch Losing Alice. Then when I searched for reviews of Losing Alice, I accidentally found Finding Alice, saw that it had Joanna Lumley in it, and then that made me decide to watch it. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Um, what have I been watching? I yeah, don't want to cover what you said last week, but you had me all geared up for Forest of Love. So I'm four episodes deep, deep cut. That's what it's called, Forest of Love Deep Cut. Four episodes in, I am very much enjoying it. It's exactly as you described. I will add a few things to your review last week. Anybody who didn't listen, please go back and you'll find a very informative review from James. It's not that accessible, is it? I think some people will switch this off within 30 minutes. The narrative is a bit all over the show, but purposefully. Um, it is a visual feast. I've had a really good time with it so far, but my word, it's a bit bonkers. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for that recommendation. Another thing to add, obviously you mentioned it's a expansion of a film. So I started with a film because I thought, do I really have six hours to you know plow into a TV series? I then thought, I'm liking this enough that I want more of it. Stop after about 30 minutes. And I don't, you probably already knew this, but I wasn't too sure from what you said. But it is the film, but extended. So it's the same scenes in parts. So it did strike me as odd that this guy who directed it, Sino, oh shit, I've forgotten his name. Sean Sono. Thank you. He must not have any control over what he shoots. <laughs> He's obviously filmed this much content and thought, oh, I've got enough here to just pad this out. And it's not unnecessarily padded. I think it all does deliver more to the experience that you have. I'm not saying that it's it's overly bloated. So, yeah, thank you for that recommendation. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing that off. I'm happy to hear that. I didn't know that it was the scenes from the film just reused, but I, I, I assume that he's filmed more in addition and that it's not made from deleted scenes. I, I don't. That was my assumption, but I don't actually know. If he has, it is so slick. It's unbelievable because scenes which lasted merely a minute in the film just seamlessly go on for minutes at a time and you can't tell that there's been any sort of reshoots or anything. It does seem as though he's just had to make some drastic decisions in the editing room when it comes to doing a theatrical version. So, yeah, interesting. And maybe I would encourage people to watch both and, and see how you can go on that artistic journey with the director and see what decisions he's made. Yeah, very, very interesting. Can I just add... On the theme of reciprocal watching, I watched the first two seasons of The Sinner off your recommendation. Very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Don't have anything to add, but just thought I'd say we do listen to each other. And thank you for recommending The Sinner to me. No problem. Look forward to season three. It's by far the best, in my opinion. Breezier content this week. I also watched Superstore on Netflix, which I think is a new edition. Have you seen this pop up on your recommends? I have. I think it was in the top 10 or recommended to me. Yeah, so way back when, in the olden days, I would 
happily consumed this sort of content, but for some reason, I've just deviated away from that and I just continuously watch dark content as we've discussed. But no, I've vowed to make a change, so that is what I'm doing. And I watch Superstore. So it's a sitcom set in a big box store in America. If you don't know what big box is, just think Tesco Extra on steroids. They literally sell everything. It was actually filmed in its early seasons within a functioning Walmart, but I think then they realised, oh, actually, it's done quite well, this. We're going to develop more seasons. They've had to move away from that. You might find that interesting. You might not, but I just thought I'd include it. Anyway, as I say, I was looking for something upbeat, kind-spirited and devoid of anything murder-related. This ticks all the boxes. It centres on a group of individuals who work within the store and their working relationships and the situations that arise on a daily basis. The biggest name in this that I recognised, maybe there's a few faces in there I'm not familiar with, but that's America Ferreira, who played Betty on Ugly Betty, but is a really diverse, talented and overall likeable cast. I had real fun getting to know each of the characters and their personalities, along with the little quirks that they've got. You get the new guy who seems to know it all and he's desperate to fit in and make his mark. You get the boyfriend of one of the shop assistants who's like a white wannabe rap artist. Then a socially awkward manager who has little respect from his surrounding colleagues and this overly enthusiastic militant security guard who takes a job far too seriously. So it's a good mix of characters. There's about 10 central characters in it and I think it does a really good job of fleshing them out and doing that in a really quick way so that you just get into the flow of the show. You get a lot of comedy that arises naturally from that. One of the episodes, and I'm going to just not appeal to people because I can't recite the comedy in it, but just to give you a flavour of what it's like. One of the episodes, they're promoting a salsa dip uh, in the store, and one of the employees takes on this Hispanic accent when she's talking it up to customers. The supervisor in the store, she takes offence to her using this stereotype, but through a series of unfortunate events, she ultimately ends up using that as a shtick herself and is forced to market it in that way. And that's hilarious when you see it. Another example is where the company, they've got an internal marketing team and they descend on the store to do like a puff piece about them. And one of the characters is a a person of colour who just so happens to be in a wheelchair and he knows full well that he is game for this photographer just being like, right, I need a picture of this guy on the front cover. So he avoids him at every single cost and it just becomes this like cat and mouse game of this photographer trying to capture a picture of this disabled bloke. And that was quite funny. There's some really fun like transitions between scenes are like five seconds long, one of which is like a woman spraying fake tan on a four-year-old daughter within the store itself. And that's nice to see well it's not nice to see but it was funny i'm not doing a good job of selling the comedy here but i assure you it is amusing and i smiled quite a lot i also really like the setting of this being in a supermarket i can't say i've seen a comedy set in this space before and i think that feels quite fresh and different i I am aware before anybody comes knocking on my door or sending us an email sky has done this before with a comedy called trolled which i've seen advertised but i've never watched it so i'm not comparing it it's also really relatable if you've ever worked in retail 
good example of that that moment when you've got that really really annoying customer who just will not leave close to close in time and you just trying everything to get them out there's really relatable stuff like that it's fun as i say it's breezy 22 minutes an episode it's not breaking the mold but it knows what it's aiming to be and it does it extremely well it's not going to break your brain it's just entertaining and Whilst the supermarket is literally one of the only places in the country you can visit right now, why not get to know a bit more about what probably never happens behind the scenes? That does sound very good. I think you have sold it well. Okay. Okay, good. Working in retail, something a lot of people can relate to. So I'm sure there's a lot of relatable comedy, like The Office. Definitely. It is of the American Office sort of style of comedy, and it does it very well. Okay. Have you got anything else? Uh, I've struggled. I'll just very quickly say... Like most of the British nation, I'm still watching Married at First Sight. That's why I've got nothing else on my watch list this week. I've invested 17 hours, full hours, into this program now. I just can't get enough. And I am ashamed, but I I can't. I can't. Married at First Sight Australia? Yes. Sorry, the Australian one. Okay. (sighs) Do you know how I spoke about how much I hated that woman on 24 Hours in Police Custody a few weeks back? Yes, that's another one that I also watched. Yes, and she is awful. Yeah, yeah, Black Widow. Yeah, there are people later on in this season that reach that level of just full-on human scum, and I pray death upon them. So, yeah, if you like getting angry, watch Married at First Sight Australia. Let's see if we get angry at this week's Real News. It's the real thing. It is now real, real news, news. I've previously discussed Small Axe, starring John Boyega, among others, and I'm about to discuss another John Boyega film in Conflicts of Interest. He's done a recent Q&A about his Small Axe film, and he said a negative thing about Star Wars, and here's the quote, being in a franchise, it's kind of like luxury jail sometimes for an actor when you want to do something else. Because remember, in a franchise, you're working on one character for many years, which can starve your other muscles. So that's the quote, and he goes on to talk about how happy he was to work with Steve McQueen and do small acts, and when he saw it, he thought to himself, this is my moment. It's extremely rare for an actor to come out like this, isn't it, and just say... I was in a big franchise, wasn't keen on it. This isn't even the first time that he's come out and said things like this. He did a more explosive interview either in GQ or Esquire magazine where he talked about how the filmmakers didn't know what to do with him and they knew what to do with Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver, but they didn't know what to do with him. I, I, I love this man. He's constantly just saying what he thinks all the time and he's always right and he's just going to keep being more successful because he is a great actor. And yeah, it's just so rare to see someone come out and say what they think about being in these franchises. Yeah, it is is refreshing. I was ready to pounce on you then, by the way, like you did when I got Apple TV mixed up with Amazon TV and said, this story's old, James, it's months old. But no, he's done it again. Um, And ballsy as well, because... I was going to say we know what the industry is like, like we've, <laughs> we're in it. I don't mean it like that, but, you know, he could be blacklisted for making such comments, but he's still got the nerve to come out and say how he really feels. So good on him. Good on him. 
good on him. These are the kind of comments that you hope that the Game of Thrones actors will make one day about season eight, and we can only hope that that day will come. Indeed, yes. In other more depressing news, at the tail end of last year, we made some bold predictions about things that we thought were going to happen in the year 2021, one of which is that we thought James Bond, No Time to Die, would be released on streaming services. Now, that's not happened. We were scheduled for a spring release. Well, guess what? No more. It is now delayed until November 2021, which means that a lot of the technology that is used in the film, which centers on a lot of product placement deals, is now going to be out of date. So an insider, according to the ever-factual news outlet, the Daily Mail, has claimed that the details of the gadgets and things are all kept tightly under wraps, but everyone knows that James Bond always carries the latest kit with him. But by the time the movie comes out now, it will look like Daniel Craig and all of the other cast members are carrying something that's been out for ages. That isn't really the point of these deals. He's an insider. He might not exist. It might be a lot of rubbish. Anyway, if they are reshooting this or certain scenes, I'd be fuming as a director. I'd be absolutely fuming. He's come out, the director as well, long ago and said, despite having all this extra time to tighten things up, make things better. He doesn't want to. He's happy with the film. If I had to go back and reshoot just so I can show some Adidas trainers, I'd be pissed off. Do you feel me? I would be fuming as well. I saw this headline. I saw it was because the technology's out of date. I just assumed it would be like spy gadgets that are now somehow, fictional spy gadgets that are now out of date. (laughs) But obviously (laughs) what you've said makes a lot more sense i'd be fuming as well can they not just shoot inserts of daniel craig's hand double holding a samsung s25 instead of s24 are they gonna have to get the top guys in to do this because that would be daniel craig just cannot get away from this role can he no it haunts him it literally haunts him it's i feel sorry for the guy i really do and Okay, we've we've mentioned it. It's the Daily Mail. I'll take it with a pinch of salt. But if there is any truth to this, why did they not cut the losses months ago? This is seriously hemorrhaging money now. If they have to hire Daniel Craig to come back and do stuff, that's going to cost a bomb, as is the film crew. Are these advertising deals really worth it? Anna de Armas is going to be wearing last year's clothing fashion as well. So she'll be out of fashion. She'll look awful in this film, wearing last year's clothes. I don't think that's possible in the slightest, but I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, they should just sell it to Apple. Let Apple buy this film. Subscribe to Apple TV+. Plus. Give them the money to buy James Bond and, and put it on there. Yeah. And what happens if, depending on when they do this, we still don't know what position we're going to be in in November. So they could go... Oh. Daniel, we're going to have to do it again, mate. And he's going to be livid. So I just don't get it. And what if it stands out that those new scenes were done separately and it creates bad PR for for the brands that are involved? Yeah. There's an annoying, obvious reshoot shot of a Sony. It would be a Sony phone, I think, not a Samsung. And people think, oh, there's Sony. One of putting putting the new phones in, annoying, ruining my film. Not buying Sony phones again. It beggars belief 
but I'm sure it's not going to be the last piece of news content that's of this nature. So more to come. Yeah. James Bond is the new Wonder Woman of this podcast, which was the new Tenet. So we've gone from Tenet delays, Wonder Woman delays, and now we've got weekly James Bond delays. <laughs> we needed something to latch on to. It's fine. I'll, I know we've been angry about it, but I'll take it for now. It's something to talk about, isn't it? So from looking forward into the future, the uncertain future, shall we revisit the past again, James? Yes, one last time. What are you talking about, you? Yeah? I very much disagree Shut up, with you. Yeah. To... You do not have good opinions. What an idiot. I hate everything. You can't even speak. Nothing you're saying makes sense. Conflicts of interest. So it's that time again. We're trying our almighty best to bring you as much relevant and interesting content as we can, but we can only do that by looking at things that have already happened, that we've already seen, that have been out in the film ether for years. So we're, we're coming closer to the present. We're now reviewing the 2010s decade. James, last week, we've already touched on it. Daredevil was on your list. I'm not going to kick a dead horse, but do you have anything to add? Do you have any thoughts or, or reflections on last week's choices? In the course of looking for this week's choices, I came across Black Book, the 2006 Dutch film starring Carice Van Alten of Game of Thrones fame. I probably would have put that in had I remembered that I watched it. I really like it. It's a highly entertaining, melodramatic World War II film directed by Paul Verhoeven, the most expensive Dutch film of all time. Available on Amazon Prime in the UK. Oh, something you can watch right now. That's always nice to slot that in there. And Denise Van Outen didn't even know she was an actress. Educational. Yep. She's come a long way from the big breakfast. <laughs> Do you have any regrets? Not in general. It's not that kind of podcast. I, I was overall ha- happy with my list, but same as you, I was looking at content for this week and what films from this decade. And then... I stumbled across one of my all-time favourite films that nobody knows about from the 2000s that I didn't even mention. And that was Sean Ellis's film, Cashback. This is a cinematic masterpiece of a film. It was originally a short film that was nominated for an Oscar. They then released it as a feature film, which didn't fare quite so well critically. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, other than there are some of the most spectacular sequences in this film that I've ever seen. It's so beautiful and unique that I can't even express it in words. Essentially, it's a love story. I'll say no more. Please, please, please watch this film. Starring Amelia Fox and Michelle Ryan. Yes, yes. And Blast from the Page 3 past, Keely Hazel, <laughs> which is not a reason to watch this film. There's, there, there is quite... Graphic nudity, but that is not why I like this film. It is stunning. It is stunning. This is another one that I remember you talking about, mainly because every time you mentioned it, one of us would say, cash back. (laughs) (laughs) Never gets old, even now, 15 years on. Alan Alan Partridge, Alan Partridge reference. So James, do you want to kick off for the 2010s decade? Yes. Any curveballs this week in terms of your rules? No, I've play- I think I've played it safer, or more safely, this week. But we'll find out, won't we? 
You might have already guessed my first choice, starring John Boyega from 2011, Attack the Block. I've mentioned this before. Have you seen this? Yes. Wasn't a fan. But okay. maybe, maybe it's different in 2021's eyes. It's about an alien invasion and some kids in London fighting to survive. It's a mashup horror comedy like Shaun of the Dead. It was well received at the time and it was revisited after John Boyega and Jodie Whittaker were cast in Star Wars and Doctor Who, respectively. And it's referred to as a cult classic. I remember watching this at the time. I really liked it, but then I didn't see it mentioned much at the time or since. When John Boyega appeared in the Force Awakens trailer, I thought, that's my boy from Attack the Block. He's broken through. He's out. He's in a big film. No one else seemed to say that. It's the directorial debut of Joe Cornish of Adam and Joe fame. And I thought this was the beginning of greatness for him. But it seems that only one of the film has has come out since then. He did co-write Ant-Man though. It's very confidently made. It's funny. It's British. It should have made more money. It should be known by more people. And it's available on all four to watch for free if you're in the UK. Good pick. Like I say, it didn't scratch the itch for me but i think i'm in the minority on that one is on many people's underrated list so good good, fine pick i'm not going to challenge you there despite this being conflicts of interest okay daniel what's your first 2010s underrated film choice i am going to be honest i'm questioning my list a lot more than i was last week and only because despite it being a more recent decade i haven't seen these films since i first watched them and it does make me query how valid is but I'm, I'm gonna go for it sod it first one is the perfect host you heard of this no no i have not this is a proper dark horse of an indie film it's a psychological thriller from 2010 and it's about an on-the-run fugitive takes refuge in the home of this well-to-do gentleman he intimidates this poor guy insisting that he comply with his demands and help him evade capture but then Things go a little skew with and the tables get turned. This has a 45% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is absolutely criminal. It does have a slightly more respectable IMDb rating of 6.8 out of 10. It had a budget of half a million dollars, but you cannot tell. It's shot in this pretty expensive home and it feels like a very polished film. But despite that really modest budget, it failed to even make that back earning a pathetic $450,000 at the box office. It stars David Hyde Pierce of Frasier fame. He played Niles Crane. He's the homeowner in this film. And slight spoiler that happens early on, but he does a U-turn on that Frasier character. He plays a distinguished bloke who's also a bit of a homicidal maniac. It's really fun to see him reveling in this role and playing against type. And it's a really good solid performance by him as well there's some nice twists along the way that i didn't see coming Altogether, it's a nice spin on the home invasion formula and i really want to encourage more people to watch it again for me it was one of those blind rentals i looked at the box art in blockbusters and i thought oh i'll give that a go i'm not expecting anything from it and it took me by complete surprise so that's why that's my first pick it's a really good one never heard of it so automatically qualifies as a true underrated film i think for the purposes of this. And if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you can watch it for free right now. James, next on your list. 
2010's Black Death, starring Sean Bean. Ah, I did not realize it's, that was so long ago. This was on Netflix for a, a while, and it popped up. I rewatched it, and it's gone again now, which is really, really annoying. Especially as you recommended it, and no one can watch it. <laughs> yeah, and judging from the box office, no one did watch it at the time either. In 14th century England, a bishop's envoy, played by Sean Bean, leads a small group, including a young monk, played by Eddie Redmayne, to a village that seems untouched by the Black Death Plague. It's also got Carice Van Outen in it. It only made $272,000 when it came out. It is not well known. It starts as a violent medieval film. There's beheading and dismemberment. And then Sean Bean's crew arrive at the village, which is somehow protected from the Black Death. And then it turns into a Wicker Man-style paranoid horror film and it presents the themes of faith and evil in a realistic way it looks at what would happen when people who believe that the plague came from god and believe totally in the afterlife meet pagans and alleged necromancers so it explores those themes really interestingly it's shot in a modern handheld style it's very grounded which is unusual for the genre but everything still looks very good it captures the setting really well it's unapologetically dark it has a dark ending on top of a dark ending it's memorable and chilling and it's got ned stark and melisandra from game of thrones in it going head to head which is really cool to watch but no one's heard of this film and no one's watched it black death that's a good pick black death forgotten about that and like i said i thought it was a lot more recent but there you go What's your second choice? My second choice is Maniac from 2012. This is an often overlooked horror film, which is a remake of a slasher film from the 1980s. In this remake, they dare to make Elijah Wood the crazed killer at the centre of it all. I know what you're thinking. That dweeb surely is too innocent looking. Nope, he does the job here. He brings a very unsettling performance. He plays Frank Zito, and I'm nicking the Wikipedia summary here. He's a schizophrenic young man who has taken over his family's mannequin restoration business after the recent death of his mother. Frank was traumatised as a child by his mother, a prostitute who made him watch her have sex with her clients. As an adult, he murders and scalps women and attaches their hair onto his mannequins to recreate his one happy childhood memory, brushing his mother's hair before she went out on a night. Oh, that's sweet, isn't it? It's written by Alexandra Arja, who is no stranger when it comes to horror. He's known for the French film High Tension from the early 2000s, which had quite a lot of success, even in the UK, actually, despite his being French language. He's also worked on the Hills of Eyes remake and Piranha 3D, which I'm not ashamed to say I actually quite enjoyed. I said Elijah Wood is creepy in it, and that's actually quite a compliment because you don't see him for pretty much the entirety of the film because it's shot from his point of view it's brutal it's creepy it's gory and it's forgotten when it comes to horror and i would highly recommend it i do just want to add there's been a lot of discourse in recent years around schizophrenia and how it's represented within the media Just because you're diagnosed with this condition, it does not mean you are likely or more likely to commit violent acts. 
or at least not to the extent that many films and TV shows would have you believe. So it's probably a bit misrepresentative and problematic in that way as we've come quite a long way since 2012. But putting that aside, a solid horror film with a unique approach to how it's shot, how it tells the story from the perspective of the killer, I really enjoyed this film. I vaguely remember hearing about that one. I wish I'd watched it now. I think I'll seek it out. Good luck. It's available nowhere. Okay. It took me a while to realise then as well that you'd said discourse and not discos. <laughs> I can only apologise for my northern accent. Not a lot I can do about it. James, third and final before we get on to honourable mentions. What's the last pick for you? 2017, Ingrid Goes West. Have you watched this? Yes. Yes, I have actually. I'm pleased you've put it on your list. I remember watching the trailer for this. It seemed quite hyped, especially around Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen appearing together. It came out and that was it. I've not seen anything else from it. Aubrey Plaza plays Ingrid, an unstable social media obsessed woman who stalks and befriends Taylor, played by Elizabeth Olsen, who's your typical Instagram influencer. But Taylor is not a disgustingly narcissistic person she's quite likable and ingrid is unstable but it's not comically over the top mental taylor's boyfriend is an artist but all he does is take old paintings and put hashtag squad goals in bright letters over the top and other things and taylor makes a stranger lie on the floor for a perfect picture so there's little details like that that show the sickness of the social media world but it's not completely outrageous it's not like very bad things it's a black comedy that is a reflection of our sick social media obsessed time and it should be held up as the great example of that in my opinion and it's got elizabeth olsen in it star of the marvel cinematic universe so why have you not watched it everyone watching it again recently which i did this week second time it is still laugh out loud funny i forgot all about ice cube's son being a Batman-obsessed screenwriter, and he's got the Batman Forever soundtrack in his car. He makes Aubrey Plaza dress up as Catwoman, and it's just... It's, I'm not going to go into the comedy. It's its a genuinely funny comedy that makes the point about Instagram being bad, but it doesn't beat you over the head with it. It's actually genuinely entertaining, really sharp, tight, well-written, and well-acted. We've got some proper variety this week. No crossover between us as well, which is difficult to do with 500 plus films throughout a decade, but we've succeeded. What is your final choice? Another, you could argue, obscure-ish film. It is Sightseers from 2012. Again, ring any bells? Do you remember this? No, I'm afraid not. So, hot off the trails of his critically acclaimed film Kill List, which I didn't really care for, if I'm honest, Ben Wheatley directs this pretty odd genre mashup of a film. It's basically a horror film masquerading as a romantic comedy. So there's a theme here. I'm obviously into thrillers and black comedies, very bad things featured on the 90s list. And you could also argue that The Perfect Host is a bit of a black comedy as well. Anyway, it's the story of a couple embarking on a caravan holiday together. All seems pretty innocuous you get the sense that it's going to be quite a lovely story. But then that turns into a big bloody mess and they go on an almost accidental murderous crime spree. 
they're basically the less glamorous northern equivalent of Bonnie and Clyde. The two main actors in it are actually the screenwriters of the film. And I'm sure British audiences will be quite familiar with them. Um, I've forgotten the bloke's name now, but you'll know him by face. But Alice Law, she's been in British comedies for years. You definitely know her. I just remember being enamoured with this at the time, and I'm always impressed when a film completely catches me off guard and ends up being the complete opposite of what I thought it was going to be. It strikes that balance between horror and comedy really well, and that's, as we've said many a time, always a hard thing to do. I'd also say it's probably one of Ben Wheatley's more accessible films. I didn't really like High Rise. I didn't like Kill List, as I said. Not a big fan of the guy, actually, but this one was a big hit with me. And that's why I've put it up there for my number three pick. Really good choice. And as you say, I think we've got a good variety there. Good variety of genres, but also some quite well-known, some not so much. You had good variety. I've gone with thrill thrillers again. <laughs> okay. And just to add, you can watch that for one ninety nine on Amazon Prime as well. So it is accessible should you wish to give it a go. Okay. James, it, as I said, it was a difficult one for me, this, just getting down to that final three. And I kept flitting back and forth. So honourable mentions so that we can finally just shove them in there somehow. Do you have any? I don't, but there's one film that I wish I had watched. And if I were to watch it now, I'm sure I would say it's underrated. Take Shelter from 2011, starring Michael Shannon, that doesn't appear to have been released in the UK. His performance in it is supposed to be amazing. It's got a very debatable ending. I've not even seen it, but I think it probably is underrated because no one knows about it, but it's apparently really good. <laughs> oh, you've done it again. You've done it again, including a film you haven't seen. I love it. I love it. <laughs> when did I previously include a film that I've not seen? No, you didn't, but last week you were just doing films that aren't that bad. And now it's films I haven't seen. <laughs> but are probably still worth a watch. I've seen it. He's great in it. My word, I find that boring. But okay. again, I'm in the minority. So tell us which one of us was right. The person who's seen it or the person who thinks it's good that hasn't. <laughs> Breaking new ground by reviewing films that I have not seen. Didn't even watch the trailer to make this comment. Just Just looked at the Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up coming across it. Do you have any honourable mentions? I was expecting you to have more, so I, I, I'm going to cut one out because I don't want to dominate. So just just two slight mentions from me. One's debatable. I've put Alien Covenant in here. Would you say that's a well-regarded film? I'd just say it's appropriately rated. Okay. It's well, it's, it's well known. Didn't do that well. Maybe it shouldn't have done that well, oh. but it's okay to like it if you want. Yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of Prometheus. I, I In fact, I downright hated Prometheus. I thought it was awful. I felt it was like it was really languidly paced entry to the series and it lost that horror aspect of the original Alien film. Nor did it have the sci-fi action of the sequel. So I felt as though Prometheus was given a bit of a pass at the time because people were like, oh, Ridley Scott returning to the franchise. Ooh, no, failure. But Covenant... Although not being reviewed as highly as Prometheus, I think it's a better film. It's dark, it's pretty atmospheric. And again, I was surprised when I originally got round to it because nobody seemed to be hyping it up too much. So yeah, I thought that was worth a mention. And last one is apt, James, because 
It's a film that I made you and your wife watch when I first met her. It is Confessions, which is a Japanese drama slash thriller about a mother who takes vengeance on a group of people responsible for a daughter's death. It's another twisty, turny type film. Plenty of shocks and surprises along the way. I might be losing my perception of time, but I feel like this arrived at a time when Hollywood just fully jumped on board with franchises, sequels, reboots, no original ideas, please. And this felt fresh and new and original, and that's what I wanted. And I just remember really liking it. I know that I said I did force you to watch it. I don't know whether you actually liked it or remember it. But yeah, I thought I'd put that on my list. I don't have any memory of it. I remember that day. don't remember the film. But I remember it that I liked it. Good. Well, there you go. A mixed bag this week. Nothing too controversial either, other than the film you've not seen. <laughs> Let's go from the 2010s to the near future with this week's main review. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Hold me sit back. This is a fact. We in the aisles. Here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync. Tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap. This week we're talking about Outside the Wire. Lieutenant Thomas Hart, do you know why you're here? No. No captain. No captain. Only two people here know who and what I am. We remove advanced weapons from beyond the wire. We ride out at dawn. I don't have any specialist training as a field agent. Don't worry, I'm special enough for both of us. He's not like us. He's stronger, faster, smarter. What's wrong? You scared? <laughs> After pressing the wrong button on his joystick, a gummy bear performs the mother of all epic fails and is sent off to a gritty summer camp to learn that death is no video game. Meanwhile, disgruntled with being responsible for the death of Netflix series Altered Carbon, Falcon, sorry, Takeshi Kovacs, sorry, Anthony Mackie, Dons yet another sleeve and joins forces with said gummy bear to deliver vaccines in double time, making a mockery of the UK government. In a world that currently makes no sense, Netflix reminds us that movies have the power to make even less sense. And in times of lowered expectations, can a dystopian sci-fi action film with subpar scripting still culminate in a recommend? In the near future... A drone pilot sent into a war zone finds himself paired with a top-secret android officer on a mission to stop a nuclear attack. Ah, so it does make sense. James, what were your thoughts on this? I see this as the latest part in Netflix's ongoing series of box-ticking action films that includes Extraction and The Old Guard. And it fits that series well. Mid-range, endless gunfights, John Wick hand-to-hand combat, no romance because romance is for girls, experienced character, escorting a younger character. I could go on. 
I'm happy for them to keep trying to perfect this formula because one day they are going to make a classic. This has a plot that is in my wheelhouse, near future sci-fi, cyborgs, discussion about American military power. It builds to what feels like a dramatically and thematically suitable ending. With 40 minutes left, takes a rest, wrecks its pacing, then starts again. It could have been tighter and explored the ideas more instead of becoming more convoluted and trying to go epic. Another feature of these Netflix action films is that they're competently but not memorably shot. There's nothing of the landscape, no standout shots that are worth mentioning, like the shot of the spaceship that was the only good thing in the midnight sky previously reviewed on this podcast. There's one part where Harp realises that there are two vehicles on either side of him at opposite ends of the street, and it looks like it's going to pan around him as he looks at both of them, but it just cuts to the opposite angle. doesn't do the shot that you think it's going to do. But it's not badly shot, it's just competent. Anthony Mackie, I wish you hadn't brought up Altered Carbon Season 2. I, I, cannot, I cannot forgive them for that. Anthony Mackie is good. I watched this twice for some reason and I liked him more the second time when it made sense what he was doing and what the character was doing. Damson Idris when I saw his name I thought oh that's Idris Elba's son and I thought no it's not Elba is his second name that makes no sense all that thought took place within about half a second I didn't it was very odd very odd um he's it's a blank slate of a performance is he heartless is he sometimes a buffoon going, oh, what's going on? And then he's a full-on hero. I just didn't buy it. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't buy it. I apologize. Daniel, what did you think of Outside the Wire? I did something I don't always do. I did read some of the reviews prior to watching this. So I've seen the critical and user ratings. It's not even a mixed bag. It's been downright trash-talked. So I came into this with my contempt hat firmly on and I was expecting the worst. So what did I think? Um, first off, some of the dialogue is atrocious. It, it literally looks like they've nicknabbed and borrowed from every war and sci-fi film known to man. The plot itself is incredibly basic. Two men, or are they, thrown together to help defeat a group of terrorists and foil their plan to acquire nuclear arms. Okay. But as basic as that is, it still manages to be difficult to understand. You're never 100%, or I wasn't, clear on what is going on or what characters' motivations are from scene to scene. In fact, the first quarter of the film revolves around them delivering a vaccine, and there's a point at which they said the vaccines were delivered, but I hadn't realised that. I don't know how I missed it. I, did, you, did that happen with you? Yeah, it did happen as well. It's delivered very casually and uneventfully. And then there's immediately a gunfight. So I, I had the same thing. Oh, good. Not just me then. The way in which the film is shot definitely doesn't help with that sort of continuity. It Some of the action, and specifically the gunfight scenes, are edited within an inch of the life. The opening scene is a prime example of this. Some of the images stay on the screen for a fraction of a second. And I thought straight away, oh God, we're, we're in trouble here. At times, you've no idea who's shooting at who or what or if they're shooting anything at all. Due to that, you don't really get the opportunity to get invested in any given moment. So I've said all that, and that all sounds pretty terrible, but 
that's not to say that the action isn't without merit. Some of the melee combat and choreography held my attention. I did actually have several moments where I thought, oh, that looks really cool. And I did, despite the problems that I had with it, feel like the action was some of the more entertaining scenes in the film. And I never felt weary from the amount of bullets being shot or punches being thrown. Other plus points, I feel like the dystopian future world that these characters inhabit is relatively well realised. The aesthetics are pretty good. Everything had a grimy, rundown feel to it. You do get a sense that this world is on its arse, for lack of a better phrase. I personally thought that despite a diabolically bad script, both the main actors in this, Damson Idris and Anthony Mackie, have some really good chemistry and they play off each other well. One hour in... You know, for all its faults, I thought, this is enjoyable enough. I don't think it's as bad as everyone is making out. But then I thought, we are pretty much done here, though, and we've got an hour left. It's going to go completely off the rails and lose my interest. But do you know what? I enjoyed the next hour, ready to tear this thing apart, much like we did with Wonder Woman. But I actually quite enjoyed it. So, yeah. It's not a body swap film. (laughs) Yay, we've done it. We've done it. Can we make it two weeks on the trot? We've broken the cycle. Thank the good Lord. I think you've summed that up well. You've expressed my own thoughts better than I think I did. It's so aggressively aimed at a male Call of Duty playing audience that I have to respect it. I have to I have to respect it for being so clearly aimed at that. Yeah, audience. and I, I, I do too, to be honest. Um, I'm not necessarily the target audience, but it worked for me. I like the near future design of things. It seemed like the robots were plausible. They looked like they were the natural evolution of the Boston Dynamics robots. They were quite cool. Not going to lie. When I see robots and robot design, I'm interested. It interests me. Yeah, and I thought it did all that stuff pretty well. I didn't have a problem with it. I'm just, (laughs) I don't know about you, but. Do you feel like Wonder Woman set a new law for how bored and frustrated you could get with a film? And this just isn't, I don't know, this is like a breath of fresh air in comparison. Yeah, maybe maybe it is that. There might be some of that. Because this does have that video game structure of talk for a bit, action scene, get in a car, talk for a bit more, another action scene. It's a simple formula, but it it works just enough. I was worried, you know, coming into this because I thought, this is going to be me fighting in its corner and you're going to come down on it hard. But I'm quite chuffed with the fact that we (laughs) seem to be more or less aligned. One of the things that you touched on about it not being quite so lean, I agree. And I think the last half an hour, it does get a bit muddled in that final act. I'm not going to deny that. But still, for the two-hour runtime, I'm again, I'm being honest here. When I saw this, I thought, I don't want to put myself through a two-hour film. Not when I'm not going to enjoy it. But I didn't feel that sense of, when is this going to end all the way through it that I had with Wonder Woman? I felt entertained throughout. Yeah, there's, there's some things that could be better, but it was perfectly fine. Yeah, and Anthony Mackie's character is entertaining. He swears a lot. He's constantly ribbing, harp. And he's in the, the whole film and he's an entertaining character. So he makes it good. Yeah, popcorn nonsense. It's something I've used to describe films before and I'm not the first to use it, but it fits into that category. And sometimes you're in the mood for that, aren't you? Yeah. 
as I've suggested, it's aggressively aimed at the male Call of Duty playing audience. I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but I'm beginning to notice on Netflix that there are things that are totally not aimed at me, like Bridgerton and the Minx saga. And that's fine. And this film, Outside the Wire, it's half aimed at me because I don't play Call of Duty. So I was quite into it. And I'm going to be honest and say that was the case. Maybe part of it was because it had me thinking, this is what a Metal Gear Solid 4 film would look like. Mm. Because it's about sneaking through a battlefield and it talks about war has changed and endless war. It explores those themes, which are pretty interesting to think about in my own head. But as you've said, the dialogue doesn't really live up to how interesting those themes could be. It's probably as clear as day, but maybe I shouldn't be so presumptuous. James, would you recommend Outside the Wire? If you have two hours and you know in your heart that you like robots and action films, yes, I would recommend it. Daniel, would you recommend Outside the Wire? I'm shocked to say it, but yes, I was fully prepared for us to slate Netflix yet again. But no, this is perfectly fine. And I do feel as though the way that it's been bashed is a bit unfair in all honesty. I don't know if I'm missing something, but it's it's good. It's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. So I alluded to it before. It's a pretty straightforward plot, isn't it? Yes, it should be. But I'm going to dig into it now. You mentioned you watched this two times. Did you do this because there was a bit of confusion around certain things. Or did you just enjoy it that damn much? I just needed something to put on in the background this morning while I was exercising. But I did feel that I needed to clear up the ending, the last 40 minutes. Yeah, because what is his agenda? Like, I get it in a loose way in that, oh, maybe I don't. Is he just like, war is bad. I'm going to put an end to it because the Americans are the instigators of this. I just didn't get it from that political agenda point of view have i missed something glaringly obvious i thought he was doing the same thing that the bad guy does in mission impossible fallout which is the greater the suffering the greater the peace that's how i interpreted it that he is completely bypassing the conflict in hungary or wherever they are and he's teaming up with this resistance force to well i don't even know if he is teaming up with the resistance force but he just wants to launch the nukes America, which he for some reason believes will make America go, okay, let's not do war because it turns out it's pretty bad and we didn't already know that. But he also seems to say in one line that he's proving a point about the cyborg program being bad, that if the cyborg goes rogue, they won't make more cyborgs. That also seems to be a big concern for him. So it is muddled then, isn't it? Yeah. I've, I've, Thought I understood it, but the more I've gone on there, the more I realise, actually, I don't understand it. I don't understand it completely. I get what he's trying to do, but the rationale behind it doesn't seem to be there. There's not really any substance around his actions. That's that's how I feel in a very generalised way, anyway. So, yeah, just that bit is probably my biggest critique of it because I'm guessing you're supposed to buy into that and... I can't say it affected my enjoyment of the film, but that it didn't land for me um, personally as to why he'd gone down this this dark path. There's a moment where Leo 
Anthony Mackie's character, is explaining to Harp, let's kill millions of people to end war, basically, which is a terrible idea. But Harp looks at him like he's actually considering it. There's a moment in there where it looks like Harp's thinking, hmm, maybe he's got a point. Maybe I should launch nuclear weapons onto America, which was very odd, very odd. It was like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible thinking, hmm, maybe I should poison the sea. Maybe this guy has got a point. It, that didn't really make any sense. Yeah, no, I agree. And there was a lot of moments like that. I feel like, <laughs> do you know when they're in the car and they're in the car quite a bit, but there's this first revelation. I think it's at the midway point where he admits that he's gone rogue and he tells, sorry, Leo's gone rogue. And he tells Harp that the mission that they're on was initially aborted. And if, Hart pursues it, it's a hunch, whereas if Leo does, then it's a fault and he'll be taken offline, which didn't make sense because in the next sentence, Harp says, but I could go to jail. But Leo's almost insisted that he'd be forgiven for that because it was on a hunch. I just Did that make sense to you? Didn't make sense to me right. either. It was like It was like Leo can't go rogue by himself. He needs to have some kind of permission from a human to not trigger the failsafe. So there's a quote which I think explains this, but I do not understand it. Here's the quote from Harp after he realizes that Leo has his own agenda and is going for the nukes. He put a gun to my head and said something about a paradox of command. Me using my judgment triggered his failsafe directive to relinquish his need to follow human authority. I don't know what that means. I didn't even realise those words were said. And I was mostly paying attention. That slipped by me completely. No, that makes no sense to me at all. I think basically it's about Leo taking steps, taking these secret manipulative steps to release himself from human authority to carry out his true mission, which he's thought of in his own head. So if he's thought of doing it, he's already gone rogue. His thoughts should trigger this failsafe just by him thinking of this yeah. plan, which was yeah. his plan for the whole film. Yeah, it's it's really confusing that because that occurred to me as well when he removes the failsafe. I also I just thought, but he's already gone rogue. So what? The, what? I don't I don't understand. We've been really forgiving with this film, haven't we? Because it does make yeah. it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. They didn't need it to be that contrived. They could have just had this first ever cyborg soldier just go rogue just make it a programming error yeah they do it twice where they do the flashbacks to different lines of the film where harp realizes oh it's all been a trick mm. but it doesn't seem seem worth it because it's not clear yeah and i think doing the same essentially the same reveal twice as well just was unnecessary once actually worked and i thought oh i like where this is going that's that's quite a neat little twist but you can't just pull the same trick on me twice um yeah can i ask you a question see if you can provide answers yes and i feel like i have been an idiot here there's mention at one point of the location of the perimeter what what is this perimeter did i, I might have missed something at the beginning of the film what are they referring to i don't know either i don't know even watch i think i only realized it the second time this morning that there is mention of Kovac or Kolak or Koval or Kokol, the Russian guy, setting up a perimeter. I think, I don't know what it means. I think it means that he has a 
protected area that he's set up in. Again, it's just throwing out these term this terminology to sound cool and military, mm. but it doesn't really add up to anything. But the action were all right, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. He had robots. He had robots. <laughs> they did, and I've confirmed it second time. They used exactly the same animation of the robots getting out of the back of the truck three times. Three times, just with different lighting in a different location. But I'm absolutely certain that it's the same render of four robots jumping out of the truck and walking to the right. Well, they blindsided me. I didn't notice that. But you're you're a keen observer, James. Nothing gets by you. Good, good find. Something that did get by me was this forced social commentary, which might surprise you considering my Wonder Woman 1984 rants. I've seen some comments that complain of this forced social commentary as though that's the main negative point that drags the whole film down. I don't even know what that is referring to. It seems to raise themes about endless war and drone pilots being too distant from the battle. I didn't think that was forced. I just thought that was the story and it fit in. It didn't say anything particularly forced or controversial or to the left or right. That was the story of the film. Am I missing some social commentary here? I had the same reaction as you. I didn't even pick up on it. I just thought that it served the plot and if anything, at times was just lazily inserted more for you to have some emotional connection to the characters. Perhaps that's how I took it. I didn't even read into any form of social commentary. Yeah, me neither. There is one scene where Leo, the cyborg, sees some soldiers smashing the head of a robot. And he says, you know, I'm going to come and smash your head in. He, he doesn't like seeing a fellow robot being beaten up. I just thought that added to the character. It added to the complexity of that cyborg who sees himself as a real being. Maybe it's that is being labelled as for social commentary, but I thought it added to the character. Yeah, ultimately, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. But I think if people are searching for that kind of message within this type of Netflix film, they're looking a bit too deep. That's my opinion. I agree. I think you're absolutely right there. It did focus quite heavily on the idea of a drone pilot being too distant from the fight. There's a bit where Harp sees the burnt corpses of people that have been killed in a drone strike. And Leo says, you're seeing your work close up. I think it focused too much on that as though that's a really interesting point to make. Because how many people involved in war ever see their work close up? Rifle range in the mid 19th century was 100 yards, which is just over 900 meters. So how close were there to seeing their work? And there's this demonization of drone pilots. I mean, bombing people is not new. World War II pilots dropped bombs on people and flew off. But the drone pilots do actually see more of what's going on on their HD screens. There was this focus on, oh, drone pilots, drones are bad, dropping bombs is bad. But that I don't think that's a new or interesting thought that was worth repeating over and over again no i think if they'd have took that somewhere and had it pay off then maybe but it ultimately serves to lead to this scene where he shoots somebody point blank range you know shoots him in the face 
And then he gets this flashback montage of him living through the horror of what he's done. But there's no impact to it. It's just there. So why bother in the slightest? That was my... That was what I took from it anyway. There is a good moment about one hour, 20 minutes in where Harp knows that a drone strike is coming and he has to kind of make a shot. He has to try and get away from the explosion before it happens, which actually happens at the end as well. And that that made sense, but that just made sense for the character. It was like, oh, now I'm going to be collateral damage. Mm. Ah, I see. That was That was good. I like that. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten about that bit, but yeah parallels i think we've we've addressed some of the criticism and we've had our own criticism against it but kind of already said it it's ignoring what this film set out to be and it's just an in your face knows what it is what's and all action flick a simple action flick and i think if you if you take it at first value that that's what it is i think you can have a good time with it yeah so lads while your significant other is watching Bridgerton. You can just go off and watch outside the wire in a different room or in the same room with headphones. Yeah. And on James's new rating scale that he's bringing to the podcast, it's not as bad as everyone says it is. And that means it's worth watching and it's probably criminally underrated. Excellent, yeah. Once again, if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to support us, please share us on your Social medias. Social medias is good when using it to share podcasts. Daniel, what's happening next week? This is pure accident, but we are having an Anthony Mackie double bill this week outside the wire. Next week, will he fare any better from a critical standpoint with the horror film Synchronic, also starring Jamie Dornan? And I've got to be honest, I'm really looking forward to this one. I'm looking forward to it too. I've been waiting for it to come out so that we can talk about it. If you wish to join the discussion and watch this film, you will have to pay for it. That's right, James, isn't it? Yes, this is a home premiere that you pay for. So pay to be part of the conversation, get Synchronic watched, and we shall discuss it with you next week. (laughs) 